Let's open our Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and tonight we'll consider verses 6 through 10. It's been three weeks since we were in 1 Timothy, because I was gone last week. The week before I was gone, we had the, the uh, flooding of the streets around here. And then, uh, uh, so I hope you haven't um, left Timothy on the shelf the whole time. I, I hope you've been reading it a bit. But uh, Paul is teaching Timothy, he's encouraging Timothy, and he's uh, showing Timothy what the church should look like, what church life should look like in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. One of the primary functions of the local church is to teach the truth, to teach the truth of the Word of God. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to do that. In verses 6 through 10, Paul says of chapter, in chapter 4, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. Paul starts off by saying, By placing these things before the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You see, if Timothy continues... To teach sound doctrine, Paul knows that despite the opposition that Timothy will encounter, he will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think people have a a bit of a misconception about what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy. And Timothy's gotten a bad rap, if you will. Timothy's gotten the rap of being an extremely weak person, kind of a wimpy person, who had fallen under the, the weight of the, the false teachers, and they were knocking him around. And so Paul is having to come down with a hard hammer on Timothy here and shake him and throw him against the wall, so to speak, and say, what are you doing? I need you to preach sound doctrine. You need to be preaching sound doctrine. That's not so much what I believe the text is saying. Actually, Timothy already is teaching sound doctrine. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue something that he's already doing. Now, it's true Timothy needed the encouragement. It's true Timothy was no Titus. Titus was more like a Marine or an Army drill sergeant. Tim, that wasn't Timothy's personality. But Timothy had not failed as much as I think people sometimes think. He, Paul is encouraging him here rather than chastising him. Now, the, and again, the, the encouragement doesn't mean that he's stopped doing what he was supposed to do. He was facing tremendous opposition. And the encouragement that Paul gives Timothy here is very timely. It was the right word at the right time. Timothy was on a mission not for Paul, uh, but for God. And the mission had to take priority over Timothy's present circumstances. The verse actually in in chapter 6 almost functions as the title of the whole section And it introduces some basic themes that will be discussed. First, Timothy's role as a teacher. Second, the place of Scripture and sound doctrine. Third, Timothy's, or concern, Paul's concern for Timothy's 
personal and ministerial well-being. And finally, an implicit contrast with Timothy's opponents. Now, that's just not just these verses, but from here to the end of the chapter. Um, the, first, the, the first phrase here is, is typically understood as a, a conditional participle. When Paul says, in pointing these things out to the brethren, it could be understood, if you point these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant. But we, we have no reason to think that he's not pointing the things out to the brethren at the present time. He's encouraging them. Just like you do with me, just like you do with other ministers here at Pine Valley. You, you come and say, hey, thank you for preaching the word. Listen, we appreciate you. We're praying for you. Those are words of encouragement. I, and I don't take it that way. I hope you don't mean it that way. <laughs> but, but I don't take it that, listen, we would like for you to start preaching the word. You see? Is that, what, is that what you mean? No. I, I hope not. You see, that, that's, not, that's not the way it should be taken. Paul is encouraging Timothy to, to continue something that he's already doing well. And, yeah, Timothy needed encouragement. But who doesn't? Who doesn't need a word of encouragement from time to time? He's simply restating the purpose of encouragement and he's, he's restating that he wants Timothy to continue what he's already doing. Um, Timothy, uh, he wasn't the leader that Paul was. But again, who was? Timothy wasn't the scholar that Paul was. But who was? N- not only in Paul's day, very few have been since Paul's day. There, there haven't been many leaders like Paul. There haven't been many scholars like Paul. It's unfair to Timothy to place him up against Paul. You need to compare Timothy with Timothy. You need to compare what Timothy was doing with what Timothy should be doing. Com- Timothy's giftedness with the expression of that giftedness. Not Timothy's giftedness against Paul's giftedness. You see, you don't need to compare your personal evangelism with Billy Graham's personal evangelism. You haven't been given the opportunities that Billy Graham's been given. You haven't been given the audience that Billy Graham's been given. And chances are, you haven't been gifted in the same way that Billy Graham's been given. Billy Graham needs to be measured against Billy Graham. And that's what Jesus Christ will do at the judgment seat of Christ. He'll look at Billy Graham and say, Billy, you were faithful to this degree with the giftedness that I gave you and the opportunities that came with that giftedness. And then you'll be evaluated with the opportunities that you had based upon the giftedness that you were given. You see, does that make sense? You, you don't, don't get down because you're not Billy Graham. You're not the, the today's Billy Graham in personal evangelism. Few people are. You, we, we are evaluated based upon what we do with what we've been given, not what we do with what somebody else has been given. So be faithful to what God gave you, and then you will receive the well done. It doesn't mean that just because you, you weren't responsible for being used of God to save over a million people, like Billy apparently has been done, and that's a great honor, but you haven't been placed in that position. I haven't been placed in that position. You, you need to, to grow where you're planted. You need to be faithful in what God gave you to be faithful, and not always looking at somebody else and trying to measure yourself against somebody else. Let's don't measure Timothy against Paul. We need to measure Timothy against his own giftedness, and Paul is encouraging him here. This whole letter really is an epistle of encouragement and instruction to Timothy I don't believe it's as much a letter of rebuke as has sometimes been traditionally understood. Encouragement in ministry is more important than some folks think. 
Some people have a special gift of encouragement. But it is the responsibility of all believers to be an encouragement to others. To come alongside those who are on the front lines with love and with support. Believers should be in the habit of building other believers up, not of tearing other believers down. Now, please don't misunderstand. Uh, there is a proper time for rebuke. Now, fortunately, it has to happen pretty rarely, but there's a time for that. But rebuke and church discipline is designed for restoration, not for destruction. Rebuke and church discipline are always designed for restoration, never for the destruction of the believer. Think, think back to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, there was a man who was, who was in the middle of a vile, sinful pattern of having sexual relations with his father's wife, and probably his stepmother. If we understand, and if we understand what was going on uh, correctly, the, the uh, Corinthian church should have thrown that man out. Because he wouldn't change his behavior. So Paul comes and says, I'll put him under discipline. Now, it's, it's not crystal clear, but it looks like that same man comes back up again in 2 Corinthians. He says, now they've thrown him out. He has repented. He's changed. And they won't let him back in. Isn't that like, isn't that like believers sometimes? You know, somebody, somebody changes the behavior that we want them to change. And then we say, well, that's not good enough for me. You know, I want you to crawl through ground glass. I want you to do penance before we let you back in. Of course, we don't want that from God, do we? When we confess? See, we don't want that done to us, but we're, we're perfectly willing to do it to someone else. So, I told you before, I've looked, I've looked far and wide in the Scriptures. I've taught, uh, I've taught ecclesiology several times. I've taught uh, pneumatology and the spiritual gifts. I cannot find... A spiritual gift of discouragement. I, I see what, what looks like to be one of encouragement. But I don't see one of discouragement. And unfortunately, a pretty serious percentage of believers think that they have that gift. Um, you don't. Uh, you, you, we do want to discourage wrong behavior. Now, that's true. We don't want to encourage bad behavior. We don't want to encourage sloppy, lazy behavior. But don't... Uh, Let's don't overdo the discouragement part. I'm saddened, really saddened when I witnessed someone in the trenches laboring for Christ, bleeding for the cause. And then I witnessed another believer come alongside not to encourage but to discourage and criticize rather than giving a word that would be helpful. Often, those who think that they have the gift of discouragement, in, in, my, in my experience, have never been on the front lines. It's easy to criticize people that are out there on the front lines. I would have done that differently. Well, good, then get out there and do it differently. Get out there and do it differently, or come alongside and help the person do it as best as they could do. You know, there, uh, this whole disunity thing in Christianity is a, is a, is a bore, it's a bother, and it is not honoring uh, to God. Some of these folks have never been personally fired upon. They've never had to dodge the fiery darts of the enemy. And I think if they would have, they would be much less likely to discourage when actually the opposite of discouragement is needed. And I know sometimes that happens. Sometimes people are discouragers and then they're placed in that position and they realize how painful that is. Um, 
one of the most criticized persons in Christianity today is Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll happens to have a radio program that reaches about a million people. Uh, yeah, I would probably do a few things a little differently, but I'm not in Chuck's position. He's the one that's out there on the firing line. And, and he probably has had just about enough of the discouragement that, that he needs for right now. Probably could use a prayer instead. Those who are on the front lines are easy to shoot at. But uh, I, would, I would certainly discourage you from exercising the gift of discouragement uh, indiscriminately. But I'm not saying that we should call something that's wrong right. I'm never saying that we should do that. Um, what I am saying is that when someone is involved in a legitimate work for our Lord, and they're being fired upon by the enemy, they don't need us to add our arrows to that onslaught. You realize what you're doing when you do that. You realize whose side you're on. You see, if you're adding your arrows to the satanic onslaught, you're functioning for Satan and not for Christ. In warfare, we would call an activity like that treason. In spiritual warfare, I suspect that our commanding officer would also consider it the same. So Paul is challenging Timothy. That's true. He's challenging him, but he is not uh, discouraging him. He's encouraging Timothy. Timothy was to point out. Now, this is a, actually a mild approach. It, it could have been stronger. But Timothy is to point out the truth about God's good gifts that Paul had just articulated in verses 1 through 5. Paul considered the Ephesian Christians brethren, not enemies or antagonists. A faithful servant of Christ must pass along God's divine self-revelation to man without distortion. It's so easy, it's so tempting to want to put our own two cents into a message. But that's not the job of a, of a pastor, teacher, or a, a professor. Our job is to discern what the truth is to make observations of the text, to interpret what those observations mean, and then to make proper application of that text. That's our job. It's all of the text. It's all of God's Word. I, I've studied some of the philosophers, uh, not in the way that, that uh, others have. I'm not smart enough to come up with my own philosophy. I, w I wouldn't want to try. Matter of fact, I see the mess some of them make of it when they try to do that. I'll tell you straight up front, I try not to come up with anything new and exciting, or rather new. I try to come up with exciting truths that are here already and just tell you what they mean and try to, try to put it together in a way that, that makes it understandable. But our job is to teach God's Word to mankind, not to teach our Word to mankind. And the closer we stay to the biblical text, Elliot Johnson taught me this. I, I, will, I will be forever grateful to him. And actually, you should be too. Uh, if he ever comes down and, and preaches at the church again, I, I'd like to you to go and thank him. Thank him for teaching Bruce and Paul, and I think Will, Will had Elliot several times too, for staying as close to the biblical message of the text that you can stay, and that's where the power of a message is. Don't go wandering off into the fringes. Figure out what that particular passage is saying, what God is saying to his people in that passage, and then preach that message, and you'll be... In good shape. So a faithful servant of Jesus Christ will pass along Christ's message to Christ's people for Christ's glory. Now, Timothy, in order to do that, had to first nourish himself on God's 
divine self-revelation. Did you hear that? You see, pastors should never study simply to teach that material to their flocks. Pastors should study first to be affected by the text and the words of Scripture themselves. And then once that, once that biblical truth changes you, then you can then, with conviction, preach it and proclaim it to someone else. That's why a pastor should never say, do as I, uh, do as I say, not as I do. That's not a biblical principle. Biblical principle is, pastor, learn the word, do the word, and then go preach the word to someone else. And so that's what Paul wants for Timothy. He wants Timothy to continue to nourish himself on the truths contained in the Bible. He would have to abide himself in the sound teaching that he had received from the Lord and from the apostles. And the way Paul puts this here, in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine, which you have been following. The way he puts this, he points out that this is not a one-time thing. This isn't a one-time thing. It's a, it's a process. It happens over time. It can't be accomplished in a day. It can't be accomplished in 40 days or even 300 days. Learning and living the Word of God is a lifetime process. Years ago, I used to uh, be employed at a, a clinic in Deer Park, and uh, my good friend was there. He always tried to keep me from going to Bible study. I went to Bible study, I think it was five or six nights a week, and, and that would just frustrate the heck out of him. He would come up with tickets to, to the Monday night football game at the Astrodome or to Astros game or no telling what, schedule a meeting for 7.30 so that I wouldn't be able to go. Or, and uh, and I, would, I would do my best to slip out of the office at the proper time, race to the other side of town, attend the Bible study. He finally got so frustrated one day, he says, how long are you going to study that book? He said, hadn't you finished it yet? I said, no. He said, when are you going to finish it? I said, never. The, the, the study of the Word of God, the study and the living, the study and the living of the Word of God is a lifetime pursuit. That's, that's why you have to forgive me, but that's why I get frustrated with 40-day programs. That's why I get frustrated with first base, second base, third base, and then you get to home plate six weeks later. And it's, it's as if you've finished studying the Word of God, now you can be the teacher and you don't have to study anymore. That's absurd. The more you, the more you study the Word of God, the more you see that there is to study the Word of God. And the richer your spiritual life will be as you live the Word of God that you're studying. Study it and live it. Timothy should not become embroiled in fables, worldly fables. On the other hand, or in contrast, he should nourish himself on the sound words of faith, sound doctrine, which you already have been following. You see, that's why I said, I don't think Paul is rebuking Timothy. He's encouraging him to continue on with the activity that he's already begun. But, now this is a contrast in verse 7. Timothy should not become embroiled in refuting the fables of false teachers, we saw that in chapter 1, verse 4, that have a certain appeal, but this appeal is only as curiosities. These fables are godless and worthless, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, 
our seniors, please don't take um, offense at that. You, you would be inappropriately applying the text. There were older women in Ephesus who were gossips and busybodies and had nothing better to do with their time than to um, engage in idle chatter. Paul is not putting down Christian ladies. He's putting down senior women who were busybodies. He'll, he'll come back to that actually later on when he talks about the, the widows and their, their responsibility to live godly lives and to, to pray rather than to gossip. To, to spend time talking to the Lord and, and, and the, the study and, and the living of the Word rather than to spend time running from house to house and being captivated uh, in, a, in a very silly way. So this is, uh, this is not a knock on, in our, on our senior Christian ladies. Uh, that's not who's in view at all. This is a knock on those who are not walking in fellowship with God. And that's, that's, that's typical in Paul's day. It's typical in our day, too. Unfortunately, there's a, a lot of people who don't have anything better to do with their time than to gossip about others. And that's, uh, Paul is, is making it very clear that that's not what our responsibility is. And you know, Paul is told, Paul tells Timothy, rather, uh, not to dabble in it but to have nothing to do with it. Now, when, when this came up in chapter 1, I, I mentioned it, and I, I'm afraid it was somehow misunderstood when I said, I'm not going to argue with you over trivialities. I, I choose as a pastor from this day forward not to argue over trivialities. I don't, I don't have the time or the energy for that. But, but if you have something that's a legitimate scriptural, spiritual question, of course I'll talk to you about that. Of course, that's my responsibility before the Lord is to instruct you not just one on group, but one on one as well. You know, I love you. I love the Lord. That's what my responsibility is. I would never turn down a legitimate question. But not to deal with ones of today, but to deal with ones of yesteryear. I'm not going to argue over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You know? There's certain things about angels in their previous salvation, their previous estate. Why does Michael hold a higher position than some other angels? I don't know. Scriptures don't tell us. It's going to be a short conversation because that's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know. But on things that I do know, I'll be happy to tell you. And hopefully we'll tell you correctly. And if you have a different view, feel free to come on. Bring it on. But bring your Bible with you. You know, don't come to me and say, well, well, Calvin said this. I'm going to ask you, well, what did Paul say? Don't come to me and say, well, Arminius said that. Don't, I'm going to ask you what Paul says. I don't, but Melanchthon said that. Well, that's cool, too. And then you have your modern-day guys bring your Bible with you, and we'll always talk about it. But Paul says, have nothing to do with these worldly fables that are fit only for those gossips and busybodies. Do you see what I mean? Their talk is worthless. Their chatter is cheap. And Paul says, Timothy doesn't have the time. To, to engage in that kind of uh, chatter. But he says, on the other hand, and this is a, this is a contrast, again, there are, con- there are comparison and contrast all through this, particularly contrast. On the other hand, as opposed to engaging people in worthless chatter, in, in, in time-consuming talk that really doesn't mean a lot. Now, by the way, we can do that today, too. And, and men can do it just as well. Sometimes when we ought to be talking about spiritual things... We're arguing about uh, sporting events or 
or uh, Jeff Bagwell's uh, shoulder, and, and some conversation about that is is legitimate in everyday uh, discussion. But but uh, I think we can get a little too carried away with it. I mean, you're looking at one of the world's worst. I, I spent there, there. There were times in the past when I spent way too much of my day, my travel time, listening to sports talk. I mean, I even got to know about Mike and Derry Ashford and some of those guys on Sports Radio 610 that called up a whole lot of time. A couple of you listen to the same thing, don't you? You know, and, and, and I knew way too much about that. In fact, several years back, after finishing a, a book on Julius Caesar, and I'd read many books on Julius Caesar, I realized, after closing the book and putting it on the shelf, I realized that I knew more about the life of Julius Caesar than I knew about the life of Jesus Christ. There was another time when I sat and realized that I knew more about the Houston Rockets than I did about the theology of the Word of God. I could have told you at one point back in the very early 80s, I could have told you everybody who was on the roster, all 12 men, not just the five starters. I could tell you what their scoring average was and what their rebounding average was and exactly what the record of the team was at that time. Now that maybe is knowing a little bit too much about that. You know, Some people have the mental capacity for it. <laughs> they can do that and the Word of God as well. But sometimes we need to stop our idle chatter as well. That doesn't mean it's sinful to go to a ball game. Of course not. But when that takes priority, then we're in, in huge trouble. If you'll indulge me, I've got just a couple more things to say, and then we'll finish this, this passage up. On the, as opposed to having uh, spending time in this idle chatter, Paul says that we're to discipline ourselves. He's telling Timothy, but it applies to us as well, for the purpose of godliness. Now, there's, uh, there's much discussion about what is godliness. Godliness is not a certain religious behavior. Lewis Perry Chaffer said, anything that smacks of a religious pose is generally wrong. We're not talking about smacking a religious pose. What godliness is here in context, in context, is being nourished on the words of, sound, of faith and sound doctrine, which you've been following. That's godliness. Godliness is learning and living. It's learning the Word of God and living the Word of God. That's what godliness is in context, and he says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. Now, it doesn't say it's of no profit. It says it's of little profit, relatively speaking. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What Paul is saying is, is he's, he's, not, he's going, not going uh, Plato on us. He's not saying that the, that the body is imprisoning the soul, and we need to get out of it as soon as we can. That's a Platonic idea. That's not a Christian idea. The body's not the enemy of the soul. The body's the partner of the soul in doing work for God while we're here on this earth. We should take care of it. So he's not saying that there's no profit in taking care of our bodies. You know, if we're to serve God in this body, we need to be as healthy as we can, right? So, so we ought to do that, but we ought not to be so consumed with that because it's, it's of little profit compared to spiritual discipline. Because spiritual discipline has profit in all things. And what Paul means is that it has profit for now, and it has profit for eternity. Whereas physical bodily discipline has just profit just for now. We're going to lose this body. We're going to get a resurrection body. It's going to look just like this one, but perfect. Won't that be great to look in the mirror and see your body, to see your face in a state of perfection? I can't wait to do something like that. It, it's going to be great, isn't it? But, that, but this body we have now holds promise for the present life, but the, the, uh, the godliness, living and learning the Word of God, holds promise for the life to come. Now, in verse 9, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. This was axiomatic at the time. For it is this, for this that we labor and strive, because we fixed our hope on the living God. Paul had, Paul had a, a fixed point that he was shooting for. There was a light in the distance 
And Paul had fixed all his attention on that one light. He had fixed his attention on the goal of not only knowing God, but living for God. And not only learning the Word, but applying the Word to his life. And finishing this fight well. Paul knew he had but one life to live for Christ, and that life would soon be done. And he knew that the things of this life that, that he did that, that were for Jesus Christ would be the things that would carry on into eternity. And that's what he wants for Timothy as well. We have fixed our hope on the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Again, the doctrine of unlimited atonement, and that's where we'll begin our study next week.